to look once again at that uh, famous passage in the book of John where Jesus turns water into wine. Although just this week, you know, because social media is always spying on us. And, uh, but it's nice to know that I've got a ministry to social media because clearly it's listening. Uh, I had a, a post come up uh, that had a great explanation about how G- one time Jesus was at a wedding where they had lots of really good grape juice, but they ran out. And Jesus was able to uh, make grape juice out of water, which I guess that's one way of putting it. But I think there's something powerful in the symbolism and what wine represents as you look at it as a metaphor all throughout the scripture. And Jesus was making a declaration about himself that with the coming of Christ, there was a new and most accurate revelation of God because Jesus is the exact representation of God. And Jesus came to bring new wine that religious institutions could never hold. And so we have this great opening story where he turns the water into the wine. And our observation last week was simply this. As we look at that story, uh, I wanted us to hold this thought in our minds. When we move from living a fear-based life of religious obligation and begin living a wonder-based life of a Jesus-centered spirituality, we receive two powerful revelations. Uh, And these are both uh, in your notes here. Honoring the dignity of humans made in God's image supersedes obligations to the demands of religious purity. And if you're interested in that idea, you can go back and look at what we talked about last week. Today, I want us to look at the second powerful revelation, which is this, obeying Jesus is the means of being transformed by the grace of Jesus. Now, one way we might say this that might get us thinking, because it's a little bit potentially provocative, is to say that salvation is accepted by faith, but it is experienced through obedience. We are saved by grace, not by works, but we will never experience the transformation of what that means unless we are committed to a life of obeying and following the way of Jesus and embodying the teachings of Jesus. That's how our salvation gets experienced. It's not intended just to be a private, heavily emotional moment at an altar. It is intended to redefine who we are because we recognize that God has made his home in our chest and now we are the point of his redemption and reconciliation throughout the world. So we've been given a noble calling to walk the earth as the pardon of God. That's our birthright, but it's also our responsibility. And so let's take a moment to think about that This story that we just read, and what I want you to think about is verse 5. John chapter 2, verse 5. Because this story powerfully illustrates the transformation that takes place whenever anyone heeds the instructions of Mary to, quote, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Now, in that story, you have a conflict and a resolution. The conflict is that the the, uh, groom has ran out of wine for the wedding celebration. The resolution is 
Jesus asked for the pots that were uh, set aside for ceremonial uh, cleansing and washing, and he says, fill those up with water, and then he turns that water into wine. So there's the conflict and the resolution. But the crisis, the turning of the story that moves from conflict to resolution is John chapter 2, verse 5. The turn is in, do whatever he tells you to do. This is the means through which the resolution, uh, the resolution of Jesus' new wine comes to fruition. It passes through the doorway of do whatever he tells you to do. Obeying Jesus puts us, uh, puts us on the path of being transformed as we follow him. That I would suggest, and again, we are not a church that demands you believe everything that the leadership believes. We are not a church. I am certainly not the pastor that's going to require everyone to believe what I believe because I'm in constant, constant tension with those beliefs. I'm constantly re-exploring them. I'm constantly asking myself, are the doctrines that I'm holding bearing the fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of something else that's much darker. And if I observe that, I am willing to rethink my understanding in order to align myself with the spirit of Christ within because my desire is not to be a good Christian, but to be a faithful follower of Jesus. I don't want the fruit of my life to, be come, to come from the discipline of my flesh, but rather from the fruit of the Spirit. And that only comes from keeping in step with the Spirit, as Paul tells us in the book of Galatians. And, but we are evangelicals in the Bible Belt, in what some might even call the, the, the buckle of the Bible Belt. My entire existence has been defined by my involvement in the evangelical Christian movement. The earliest formational years of my life where I was consciously putting together my own self-concept of who I am cannot be divorced from the influence of the evangelical Christian movement. It has been a part of me from my earliest of memories. And so what I know about my particular stream and about my particular family, and every family has its secrets and every family has its challenges. And one of the challenges of my family is somehow we've evolved into thinking that salvation, rather than being purchased solely through Jesus, is something that comes from the work of Jesus and whether or not I believe certain doctrines about the work of Jesus. So now, it's not just by salvation by faith, it's, by, it's salvation by faith in certain prescribed doctrines that you have to acknowledge in order to be considered part of the group. Now, I am not saying that doctrine doesn't have its place. I am not saying that doctrine can't be a vehicle that empowers us to live more faithful lives of Jesus. I believe that it does. The day I don't believe that is the day I need to submit my resignation. So the very fact that I've given myself to this work reveals the fact I do think what we believe is important, but I do not believe the grace of God in our lives hinges upon whether or not we believe just the right things. I saw another great meme this week on my social medias. Maybe I spent too much time on Facebook this week. 
But it's just a picture, it's an old picture of the 50s, you know, with the child talking to a very Western Caucasian Jesus. And the child looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, why am I the only one here with you? And Jesus says, everybody else's theology was just slightly off. <laughs> and I laughed like you just did. And I thought, wow, there's some truth to this little silly cartoon. We do emerge into thinking that faithfulness to Jesus is revealed by how much we've aligned and promoted certain doctrines and doctrinal practices. And again, I'm not demonizing those, but I am saying as a means of being faithful to Jesus, our doctrines are great. As a substitute to faithful to Jesus, they damn us because they are idolatry. It is moving faith away from the work of Jesus and putting it into my intellectual ascent of particular doctrines. And we have to recognize the difference because I believe it has created a deep cancer in the evangelical movement. And it has resulted in our children and grandchildren walking out the door. And the only way that we're gonna change that is if we allow the prophetic spirit to shake everything that can be shaken so that we are standing on Christ alone and trusting in Christ alone. And Jesus repeatedly reveals this. I don't know why we've wandered so much away from this critical aspect of faithfulness to the ways of Jesus as the means of experiencing our salvation. But let's look at a very popular story. You probably learned a cute song about this story. It's found in Matthew chapter seven, just four verses, verses 24 through 27. Take you a second to, to turn there or you can take a look in your notes. By the way, I know that some of you, because someone's already asked me about it, I thought you were gonna only preach a 30-minute sermon. Why are the notes two full pages? Well, some of you might notice you didn't have to take out your reading glasses. They are on 14-point font instead of 10-point font. So let's, that's still not a guarantee I'm gonna be done in 30 minutes. However, the ham bodes well for you all. Verse 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the river rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet, it didn't collapse because the foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Now, the powerful point of this sermon, of this uh, um, parable, which is made rather cute by the songs that we learn in Sunday school, is really profound. 
because it says you can hear the words of Jesus, maybe even affirm them intellectually, and your life will still collapse if you never get around to acting on those words. The key difference, both men are likened to people who hear the words of Jesus. One man acted upon them and thus his life was built on a rock. Another man only heard them, but there's no action and his house was built on the sand. And when the winds came, it collapsed. Now, the redemptive part of that reality that I've seen is I have sat with scores of believers for too many minutes and hours to count. Not above them, not across from them, but beside them as we've wept because their lives collapsed. Because even though they got, they went to False Creek when they were seven and baptized when they were eight, at some point they may have continued attending church but they ceased giving their lives to following the way of Jesus. And church attendance and doctrinal affirmation will never be a substitute for actually following the ways and teachings of Jesus. What is redemptive is that ends up becoming their true conversion. They end up finding out it wasn't at False Creek, it wasn't at uh, um, confirmation, It wasn't at baptism. It was when my life collapsed and I recognized the difference in believing about Jesus and being faithful to Jesus. I recognized the difference in trying to be a good Christian and rather becoming a faithful follower. And God uses that. That collapse is not the end because oftentimes that collapse represents a rebuilding and this time they rebuild on rock, not on the shifting sands of vague religious promises and formulas. The difference is simple though. It all comes down to a willingness to actually put the words of Jesus into action. It's simple, but it's difficult because regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, the ways of Jesus and the words of Jesus are going to offend some of your politics and assumptions. And when it does, the response cannot be to turn Jesus into your political system. It is to repent of the false beliefs you've held onto and let them go because they are not consistent with faithfulness to Jesus. Which means you won't have a team anymore. You won't have a t-shirt to wear other than I'm seeking to live a life of faithfulness to Jesus. You see, what this story reveals is that I can be a Christian, I can attend church, and yet never know the experience of being transformed by Jesus. It's all of what happens, as we just sang, when the music fades and all the stripped away. When we don't have the emotional supports of life in camp or in an insulated religious community. That's when we find out what we've built our life upon. That's when we're invited to really understand the means through which we are transformed by Jesus. And it is 
in keeping in step with the Spirit as we live out faithfulness to the way and the teaching of Jesus. 1045, well, I was hoping I'd be further along at this point because there's time for me to bear witness to something that I was fine to leave out. And again, I am not saying this as directive to anyone else's story. I am not Pastor Artie for these moments. I'm just Artie. A man falteringly striving to keep in step with the Spirit. But to me, this is one of the powerful examples of the difference that following Jesus and being faithful to Christianity resulted in my life. I went into marriage with what I now understand to be an extremely destructive and toxic interpretation of the roles of husbands and wives into marriage. I had a ridiculously demonic understanding of what it meant for my wife to be obligated to be submitted to me. And that came right out of the way I was taught to read certain scriptures and the doctrine that was given to me in the church I grew up in. And it allowed me to justify not being the presence of Jesus in my home, but rather being the religious know-it-all. And really, frankly, feeling like I was more spiritual and she really needed my guidance in order to attain maturity. And as silly as that sounds, and I see some of you at least acknowledging there's a little humor in that, but there's a lot of quietness in here. Because as silly as that sounds, that is precisely the kind of doctrine that gets rolled out in evangelical churches all the time. You can go and Google certain quotes. One perspective is this. The Christian hub husband rescues the woman from a life of meaninglessness and loneliness. <laughs> Thank you, Sister Summer. <clears throat> These are the ideas I brought in, and so it justified years of belittling little by little until one day, there was no joy behind those brown eyes anymore. And in a moment of rescue from the Holy Spirit, I was confronted with the fact that that was my fault. I was responsible. And it led me to a different reading of Ephesians 5. Instead of opening Ephesians 5 and just saying, wives, submit to your husbands, I suddenly noticed the previous verses that said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Now, the problem is, if you have a toxic view of Christ, you will still justify toxic behavior. But when you understand, or really a toxic view of God, but when you understand God is exactly like Christ, it invites you into a different perspective 
that can alter your behavior. And so I don't feel shame over this, but I do continue to feel immense regret. And even though this doesn't work in Protestant circles, it is one thing for which I will gladly do penance until the day I breathe my last breath, because I, in my mind, won't make up for the years that I did it in the opposite direction. And I assure you, I still don't do it perfectly now, but don't talk to my wife about this. You need to respect her boundaries and privacy. But my confession is this, until I, as a husband, learn to attempt to consider my wife's needs as more important than my own, I was never going to be spiritually mature, regardless of the amount of church dogma that I learned, and regardless of the amount of religion, Christian religion that I practiced. There was always going to be a ceiling that I would come up against with whether or not I was going to submit to the ways of Jesus and learn how to love my wife as Christ loves the church. But in the grace of God, he reveals our weakness. He reveals our sin. And this is why repentance is such a beautiful gift because you can begin to turn it all around. And although I might say, I don't think I can ever make up for it, what I've already seen is the spirit can more than make up for it. Because the spirit bears fruit exponentially more uh, advanced and quickly than I can in my flesh. So as we close, let's think about then how this practically works. And here's Paul's instruction in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, and in verse 25. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It is in keeping in step with the Spirit that we manifest a lifetime of faithfulness to the ways of Jesus. Because I need the Spirit to constantly be intervening and reminding me because so many other things pull at the attention of my emotions and my thoughts. And I need something larger than just my experience to pull me out of that. And that is the Holy Spirit. And what's great is I don't have to beg him to open the heavens and come down. I don't have to slobber in prayer for two hours to try to get some buzz. No, the Spirit's just right here resting. Very peacefully, all I have to do is stop the noise and attend to it. So, as we close, I want to take a moment and just offer some practical guidance about what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. These aren't absolute. These are ideas that have helped me, and if they help you, so be it. If they do help you, know that at some point they ceased being my ideas and they just became your ideas. So you can pass them on and give them to other people from your own experience and heart. Number one, start with a commitment. And by this, what I mean is not kind of white knuckling, but set your intention. Take, if I don't take time to set my intention, my intentions will be set by other demands and other emotions. So daily, I've got to have a moment where I'm proactive about that. 
Set your intention to become mindful of taking time to pause and pay attention. It's as simple as that. The Spirit isn't silent. The Spirit is always speaking. The Spirit is always guiding. The issue is whether or not I'm pausing and paying attention to what he's saying. Secondly, practice awareness. This is a really interesting one because it's not foolproof, and I'm saying this from the beginning. It's not foolproof. But these are ways to begin to at least position yourself to listen to your inner lucidity that flows from the presence of God in your soul. Practice awareness. Start taking notice of shifts in your emotions or your gut. Take notice when you offer spontaneous wisdom that may even have taken you by surprise. You ever had that moment? I mean, sometimes I've got to stop and celebrate it. I just pause whatever's going on in the conversation and go, wait, that was really good, wasn't it? Let's just take a moment and appreciate what just came out of my mouth because it surprised me as well. And when I do, what I do now is at the end of the day or the next day, I write about it in my journal. Piece of wisdom that was just dropped. Just the other day, um, we were having a... uh, 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 and Dina, in one of our staff meetings, comes with a meditation. So we kind of close our eyes and we do a guided meditation. And so we were doing this meditation. And spontaneously, what came to my mind, I don't remember even the, the exact nature, the details of the meditation, but I know what I was thinking about. It was about letting go of anxiety in the future. And it just, which I have a lot of right now. And this simple thought came, You can't control the outcomes of the future, but you can control the seeds you're sowing in the present. And I desperately needed that because I had cornered myself in a place of emotional despair and fatalism that there's nothing I can do. But that's not true. There's nothing I can do about all the variables that affect future outcomes, but I have a powerful opportunity choose what seeds I'm going to sow today in this moment, both in my own mind and heart, maybe even in my body and in my relationships and in my interactions with other people, or in the thought fantasies that that, that I, I, as a thinker, allow to fill up most of the space of my day up here. Most of my day is not lived here. It's all lived up here. It takes a lot of work for me to come from here to there. This is nice, but man, this is my own controllable playground up here. But I have a choice about what kind of seeds I sow into that reality. Honor the creative nature of the Holy Spirit. And what I mean by this is avoid preconceived notions or rigid thinking and keep an open mind. We never know when the Spirit might open a window to the soul through an unexpected emotion or a song lyric or a line from literature or poetry or even from cinema. Here's what I've learned. The Spirit often uses art to instruct or inspire. In fact, I think it's one of the greatest gifts that art gives us because the artist, in my mind, comes very close to living the heart of God because All that was created came from the heart and mind of God. In fact, in my later years, I've come to understand my concept of God is he is first and foremost an artist, and he creates. 
And so art can often be used. I remember looking for guidance, praying for guidance, not getting anything, going to bed unsatisfied. And I had a dream in which a line, a song lyric from a queen song played over and over and over and over. And when I woke up, of course, you know how you do, it was on my mind. It's what I sang when I was in the shower that morning. Not that any of you needed to be aware of that. But as I realized, look what the Holy Spirit, now could the Holy Spirit have spoken to me as I opened up my Bible reading? And absolutely he could have. I'm just saying it's not the only way he does it. Sometimes he uses a Psalm of David. Sometimes he uses a Psalm of Freddie Mercury. That's all I'm saying. And we have to be willing to be open to any way the Spirit is speaking. And finally, this is the most important practical one. Give yourself quiet time. Reflect, pray, and journal. Begin to notice the rhythm of the Spirit's work in your heart. Now, those are the things that have worked for Artie. What might the Spirit be leading you to do? Just a micro-adjustment. Not any life-transforming encounters here. Micro-adjustment. Little bits of wisdom that might realign your heart a little closer to hearing the voice of the Spirit. I've done pretty good. I have a minute to spare. So I'm going to ask everyone to close their eyes and bow their heads, and I'm going to give that minute to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you take this time to whisper your instruction in our hearts? What is the next step we need to take in order to keep in step with the Spirit? Lord, I thank you. The very doctrines that teach us that Christ atoned for sin on the cross and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus gives us permission to pursue faithfulness to you imperfectly. Because all the moments of imperfection and failure and sin have been covered and been already declared forgiven by the work of Christ on the cross. Now let us do the brave work of coming before you with all of our flaws, all of our uncertainties, and all the ways we disqualify ourselves. And allow those voices to be silenced so that we can say, here I am, Lord, your imperfect servant, what is the next step you're calling me to take? And give us the courage to act upon that instruction. We give thanks to you. In your name I pray.